Hey everybody, this is Keach Rainwater on Designated Drummer. I am your Designated Drummer, and with me today here, I have a, I, I don't even know where to begin. This guy, he's a hero of mine, definitely for sure. John Dietrich from Restless Heart. How you doing? Hey man, what are you doing? I'm, I'm your designated retired drummer. That's right, yes, yeah. that's right. And now, uh, the reason I came up with the name, I'll just tell you, the uh, designated drummer is sometimes before the show, the band will get together on the bus and they'll do a little toast, you know, like a shot of tequila or something to kind of loosen up. And well, you know, as a drummer, yeah. you're driving the ship. You can't, yeah. you can't drink and try and do all this stuff you got to do, right. count the songs and, you know, keep, keep on the set list and... So I would uh, I would refrain and drink water, and I would say I can't. I'm the, the, the well, where's yours, Keach? And I would say, well, I'm the designated drummer. Yeah, you know. You so go. that's how sure. that came about. Yeah. So uh, alcohol and a drummer before a show just don't mix at all. No, not at all. No. no. I always say save that for after the show. If, if if you have to do it, save it for after the show. But um, I've even tried that before, where they thought, uh, what, "What the heck? What's the worst that could happen?" And I did, and of course, the uh, worst happened. Yeah, you know, yeah. counting <laughs> off the wrong song. You'll you know, find you out what slow down. You know, just yeah. oh god. Yeah. You know. <laughs> anyway, so well, man. Uh, so restless heart, man. Um, I read that you guys started back in 1984. Um, in, uh, 1983. 1983. Right. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a story about how that all started and how you got involved? Well, uh, Tim Dubois, uh, as you know, uh, who went on to head Arista Records, and he signed Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn, and you know, he, at at the time he was a, an accounting professor at Vanderbilt University. Okay, now he had also, as an accounting professor at Vanderbilt University, had written two huge number one records, one called She Got the Gold Mine, I Got the Shaft by Jerry one? Reed. Jerry Reed. Yeah. And the other one was Love in the First Degree for Alabama. Wow. And he wrote those two. So it, as a songwriter, he was writing music that w- wasn't country enough for country, but it wasn't pop enough for pop either. It, it had right. a... It was in its own little area. Kind of middle of the road. Yeah, and so he um, he decided that he wanted to make records, and he needed a vehicle for that, and he decided to put a band together. He had been working in the studio on his demos using uh, Greg Jennings on guitar, Dave Innes on piano, uh, Paul Gregg uh, mostly on, on uh, background vocals, um, and he was using a drummer named Dennis Holt and a bass player that we all know, uh, Michael, um, help me. <laughs> Getting old sucks, folks. <laughs> Michael Rhodes? Michael Rhodes. Yeah, right. yeah Michael Rhodes. And, and uh, that was his, his rhythm section, you know. And so he wanted to put a band together. And originally the band was going to be called Oki because all four of the original members, of which Verlin Thompson, by the way, was the original lead singer of right. Restless Heart, they were all from Oklahoma. Okay. The rule was you had to be from Oklahoma and you had to sing. Right. I think they auditioned every drummer in Oklahoma and none of them could sing, right. thankfully for me. So I had been in a band with Paul Pryor and... Uh, they they had exhausted all their possibilities for a drummer from Oklahoma. Right. And Paul said, don't worry, I know a guy. 
you know, he's, he's a good drummer, good singer. It's like, so. we'll just say he's from Oklahoma. Yeah, don't worry about it. Well, they couldn't call themselves <laughs> Oki anymore. Oh, right. So they brought me in. Uh, they were recording, um, not the masters, but but Tim was Tim was recording other, other songs that he had written specifically for the Restless Heart Project. Right. And I was working down on Second Avenue at the Stockyard, and we, we would play an hour on, an hour off. Yeah. They called me in. I would I would play my set at the stockyard. I'd race over to the recording studio. They'd stop whatever they were doing, and they'd, they'd start putting my background vocals on things. The stockyard now, that's Nashville or Dallas? No, right? here. Here Nashville. in Nashville. The stockyard's okay. in Nashville. Do, you know, put my vocals on something, and then I'd run back and play the next set, and I'd, I'd repeat this, you know, twice during the, during the wow. course of the evening. And this is going on for weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they they never asked to hear me play drums. Huh. And uh, I, I, at this point, I'm confused as to whether am I in or am I out. I yeah. don't know what's going on. And finally, I said to um, Tim, we were in the studio, and I said, "Well, okay, I, I I don't know what my my place here is. Am I in the band or am I not in the band?" He said. Oh, nobody told you? I said, <laughs> no. So you're in the band. So great. I said, don't you want to hear me play drums? I hadn't put drums on anything. It, wow. you know, it had all been recorded. And he said, well, you know, no. I said, I really think you ought to hear me play, you know. Okay, go on out there and play. So I think they put on Let the Heartache Ride, oh, yeah, which right. eventually was our first single. I got wow. through a verse and a chorus, and talk back comes on. Yeah, it's great. Come on in. You know, <laughs> that was it. Wow. No it, more. It was almost like the fact that you could play well, play drums well, was sort of just an ancillary fact. It was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You yeah, know, well, I'm sure he... they were more interested in vocals yeah, than, right, than yeah. they were, you know, they just wanted a drummer that could keep two and four. God, that is so strange. So um, uh, Verlin Thompson decided that he couldn't go on for whatever reason, and... Dave said, I know a guy, and that guy was Larry Stewart. So there you had Restless Heart. Yeah. What did you think of when, like, what went through your mind the first time you sang that sort of four-part harmony with those guys? I mean, and how cool that must have sounded. Well, first of all, it was was very fortunate because they needed a high harmony singer, of which I am a high harmony singer. You're the high harmony. I naturally gravitate to to that part. So it was just, um, it was a perfect match. Yeah. Paul sang the third, Larry sang the melody, Greg doubled the melody. Uh, Dave sang, sang the fifth below. Right. So essentially we were in an octave. Wow. So that's the yeah. Restless Heart Harmony. I mean, the first time I heard Let the Heartache Ride, it was in mm-hmm. 84, I think. I was in a, It was released in 85. Yeah, yeah 85. Yeah. I was in a band with Steve Mandel, who mm-hmm. was with yeah. Six Wire and all that. Yeah. We were in a band, and he uh, was, you know, we would get together once a week to rehearse a new song, basically. We were just mm-hmm. a club band, you know, back in Dallas, in the Dallas area. And he would come to us with, uh, Steve Mandel would come up to us with a song that he wanted to sing, and he would play it. And that was one of the songs. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. And I was like, who's this? And he goes, it's a band called Restless Heart. And uh, he played some of the other stuff that was from you guys. And I was just like, wow, this is like, uh, I remember thinking that you guys were like, reminded me of Toto. I was like, this is the Toto of country. Well, this is like to- so... Toto were, they were big. Yeah. We were all huge Toto fans. Right. You yeah. can kind of tell it. I can kind of feel I, it. I think the, um, you, can, you can take this any way you want, but 
um, a drum, a, a very well-known drum teacher in town um, who taught at uh, Forks, yeah. Harry Wilkinson. Um, I was in there one day, and Harry came, we, we were talking, and he said to me, he said, you know, he said, the rest of us in town consider you guys to be the steely Dan of country music. Okay, and yeah, I get that. I took that as a huge compliment because right. I know all of the, the, the painstaking production that went yeah. into those records. Every you know. sound, every decision, yeah, every, exactly. the mix, you yeah, know, all that yeah, stuff, yeah. And, and those songs still hold up today. So now we, we do have something in common. We're both uh, uh, former label people at RCA, you know. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. I just wanted to talk a little bit about how that whole machine and everything was back in the day. You know, mm-hmm. you guys experienced it first. And when we came along mm-hmm. in 94 slash 95, mm-hmm. we were kind of like the new Restless Heart from what people yeah. were saying, that when you guys right. first started with RCA right. back in the 80s, it was like the RCA group of, like, everybody was excited. It was like their new project, yeah. this new band. Well, RCA's plan for you guys was to become platinum sellers, whereas Restless Heart could barely get by gold status. Right. Because right. when we started, country had 11% market share. Right. Total. You were just coming off of the urban cowboy craze. You know, yeah, and we of. weren't traditional country, and we weren't Western swing. And we, we had a niche that, uh, that Joe Galante and, and the staff at RCA believed was the future of right. Restless Heart. Um, I know that they worked very hard. They were very disappointed that they could never get us to that platinum level. Um, Like Joe Galante told us, he said, it takes three big records in a row. Right. And he said, you guys have always managed to get two in a row. And somehow we've missed that third one. Yeah. You know. I agree. I agree with and, that. And yeah. that, no, I was pretty pretty row. right. Um, they worked very hard. It, it 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 was there was so much belief in us. Yeah. Um, as, as a matter of fact, Joe Galante told his uh, promotion staff um, on the first single release, which was "Let the Heartache Ride." He told them the goal is number one. Well, they'd never heard of that before on on an unknown artist with, right, with yeah. no track record. And he said, "I want you to know this is how much belief I have in this group." Right. And, um, you know, he, we were, he, he said that we were like his sons yeah, wow. to him. So how did uh, singing lead for you? How did that, uh, was that, did, had you always done that kind I, of, I like had in always, the band? Or? Yeah, I had always been, been a lead singer as well. Yeah, so um, y'all shared on, in Restless Heart when you first started? Was we it? were supposed to. Yeah. The way it was planned was we had three lead singers in the band. We had, there was Larry, myself, and there was Paul Gregg, the bass player. Now, Paul Gregg is a great singer. Yeah. Full of emotion. I mean, the emotion that he gets. I like the texture of his voice. Yeah. He kind of has that Phil Collins type thing. Singing a song um, is just phenomenal. He's a phenomenal singer. You know, I'm... Larry Stewart's a great singer. I'm a good singer. I'm not a great singer. Larry Stewart's a great singer. Yeah. And I learned a lot by singing... Uh, background vocals in the studio having to match his inflections, right. which were of something course, yeah. new for me because I never had to worry about that so much. Where to cut off the note and how to make the vowel exactly, turn I, and, the right and you have to match it. Yeah. you know when you're singing backgrounds on a record. Wow. And back in those days, we didn't have Pro Tools. Right, you had to sing it to which tape. And yeah. t- it's like Tim Dubois said, he he clocked. We had twenty four hours, not man hours, 
24 total hours into singing the background vocals on the song Wheels. Wow. And now, did you guys do that technique back then when, uh, where you would put two or three guys around a mic and you would sing all the harmony like right at one pass around one mic, and then you would go and double that kind of thing? Yeah. Is that what you would There would be four, four of us singing background. At the same time yeah, in at one the same, mic. same time. Yeah. Uh, they put Paul and I on one side of the mic because Paul sang the third and I sang the fifth. They would ah. put Dave and Greg on the other side of, the, of, of this plexiglass divider um, so that the, the, you know, it, the parts weren't... Uh, yeah, know, I so see. That yeah, was yeah. The, the, and there'd be one mic on each side, and uh, it was all analog then, and they had to you know, punch everything, and they had of to... Of course, uh, yeah. they, if they If they, they were cutting tape and splicing it and stuff like oh, that. Oh, God, yeah. If one of us was not right on it, we'd have to sing the whole it's, thing, yeah, a whole right. line again. Now, I wonder why they um, didn't just do your individual parts and then mix them. Were they limited on tracks? Scott or? Hendricks, um, who was a brilliant engineer uh, and was a partner of Tim's. And, of course, Scott later went on to become the, the head of several big labels. Right, yeah. Um, and actually make more money than Tim Dubois, which really bugged Tim to know that. Um, his theory was that two voices hitting a microphone, there was a quality to it that, that you couldn't get when you just did one, vo okay. one vocal I, get, I agree with that, yeah. Now, okay. when I did the Buffalo Club, Barry Beckett, of course, we had Pro Tools then. Yeah. Barry Beckett um, sent us in one at a time. And he said, I want one, one at a time, because he said, we'll, we'll take care of it in, in Pro Tools. Right. I want a performance. Yeah. I don't care if it's slightly out of tune or slightly off. I want a performance. That's what yeah. I'm looking for. Now, in the Buffalo Club, uh, now, for those that don't know, uh, John, after when Restless Heart sort of took a break for a while, um, st you were in a band. You started a band called Buffalo Club, I and did. it was your own kind of thing. I and did. you had a, a yeah. song on radio and a video and all that. I remember that I was did. in what year yeah. was that? 90. Uh, 90. Two, three, 96. Maybe? Oh, 96. Okay, yeah, right. That's right. 96. And uh, now, did you sing lead in that band? No. No, no, you didn't. No, you didn't I didn't. I, I went into the Buffalo Club with the attitude of, okay, I sang on this big record, When She Cries. Everybody's yeah. going to expect that I'm going to... We're going to talk about that in a minute. Though, that I'm going to want to be the lead singer. Right. I don't want to be the lead singer. I want Ron Hemby, who's a phenomenal singer to be the lead singer. And, and I mean, you sing harmony and just I, do I, your I'd normal, sing harmony, yeah. yeah. I'm perfectly fine with that. I yeah. sang all the duets uh, with, with Ron. Oh, that's cool. And um, we had Chris Rodriguez come in right, and, okay. and sing the third part. From Los Angeles. Uh, he, he, yeah. He's a huge... He sang on some of our stuff, too. So oh, like, I think the yeah. pop version of Amazed, yeah. uh, the pop mix, yeah. he sang some kind of little counter-melody yeah. thing or something He's like that. He's an incredible, Dan, incredible singer. Yeah. And uh, so that's how that, that went down. You know, that's how yeah. we recorded that album. Wow. And uh, so what was I going to ask you um, uh, about singing? Oh, yeah, about the song When She Cries. That, am I in mistaking by saying that was the biggest song you got Restless Heart had as far as a pop, pop crossover and like the number of uh, plays it, that it got? It was by far the biggest pop record yeah, we had. Right, um, right. I remember being in the car and listening to Casey Kasem's Countdown. And Casey we, Kasem? And we were at number five. Wow. 
in between Elton John and Whitney Houston. I wonder that, what that must have done to Larry, thinking like, well, I've been singing for this band for so long, and the drummer sings a song, and he's all of a sudden it's well, the biggest song. there's a story about When She Cries, okay? I want to hear this. Can you tell the story? Yes. Yeah, right. sure. And, I, you know, I, I, oddly enough, for some reason, I didn't know this story until about five years ago. Really? Larry left the band. He's doing a solo album, okay? So... Scott Hendricks is, uh, and, and Michael O'Marty and I think are producing him. And um, they have their meeting with the record label. And of course, our management is there, Larry Fitzgerald and Mark Hartley. And, and they, they, they get finished playing all the songs for the label. And Larry Fitzgerald said, you know, Larry, there's only one song on here that just doesn't belong, just doesn't fit. And he said, oh, yes, what's that? And he said, well, it's When She Cries. And Larry said, you're kidding me. That's my favorite song. He said, just doesn't fit. And Larry was heartbroken because he loved the song. Right. You know. And he said, well, okay, if we're not going to put it on the record, he said, I want the guys to have it. Okay. So Josh Leo kept telling us for a week or so, I think we're going to be able to get a, a song. I can't tell you what it is because it's been recorded. They're, they're trying to make the decision now. While they made the decision, Josh Leo told us it's a song called When She Cries. Had no idea Larry had cut it. He didn't play us Larry's version. He played us the demo, you know, the Mark Beast right. and Sonny okay. Lemaire yeah. demo. And, of course, Mark and Sonny were, were in exile, prolific songwriters. Right. Right. And Mark wasn't, but Sonny was. Yeah. So we hear this demo, which is a typical Nashville demo, typical, you know. So those are the writers of the song, Sonny? Yeah, and, Sonny and, Lemaire okay. and Mark Beeson. Nice. And it was a typical Nashville demo, uh, kind of bouncy, yeah, you know, right. two, two and four. Just a simple. Josh had been thinking about this, and he came up with the entire arrangement. He said, I want the intro to be a, a like that, that 10 cc intro to I'm Not in Love. Yeah. That, okay. you know, yeah. harmonized. Um, and he said, John, he said, I want you to play four on the floor like Henley's The Last Worthless Evening. Right. Okay. And Greg, I want that last worthless evening yeah. acoustic guitar feel on it. And he literally came up with the whole arrangement. Wow. And it turned out to be this huge pop record for us. Yeah. That is amazing. You know, I always tell my students, uh, four on the floor, just a simple, either just a kick, snare, kick, snare, like back in black, you know, that kind of thing, four mm -hmm. on the floor. It's never not the right beat. You know, it's never yeah. not the right thing. You, it's yeah. just meat and potatoes. Some of the most famous songs in the world have, even though they may be like complex or whatever, yeah. if you really boil it down, a lot of the best songs just have kick, snare, or kick, or four on the floor with the snare and the two and four, yeah. or kick and snare, kick, snare. This something about it. What what Josh wanted was he wanted he wanted every beat on the bass drum. Right. So one, two, three, four on the bass drum, every measure. Yeah. You know, two and four on the snare. That, that's yeah. what he wanted. People that, can dance to that. You know? It was I mean, perfect. it was a big two-step type thing at yeah, the time. Yeah, it was you know? perfect. Yeah. And uh, nobody really, I mean, in my estimation, nobody had ever really heard your voice before. Maybe live or something like that, or in the early days when I, you sang I had, more lead. I, had, I sang one song on one album, and I forget which album it was. It was a song called Calm Before the Storm. Uh -huh. On that, an early Restless Heart album? That, that Van Stevenson 
uh, I know Van Stevenson was one of the writers. I forget who the other writers were. And uh, they thought it was a cool song, but Larry didn't want to sing it. So I'll sing it. Wow. Well, I sang it, and um, Josh Leo heard that one song, mm-hmm. and when Larry left, Josh came over to me and said, you know, you're the lead singer now. Yeah. And he said, you are going to take this opportunity, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, sure, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so wow. that's how that went down. So I want to talk a little bit about your early days, how you started out. Like what, you know, I always talk, talk to my students about there's basically there's two kinds of musicians to me. There's the ones that are good, they play, they're talented, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And in their mind, somewhere deep in their mind, they're still not really sure whether they're going to do this for a living or not. You know, you know the type that, yeah. that either, or that they may go be a, you know, I could make so much money mm-hmm. at this, at this insurance company or whatever, or I raise a family and I, and then there's these other ones that mm-hmm. it's never, never a, a decision. It's just like in your mind, you are going to be a drummer and that's all there is to it. I mean, even if I have to starve to death, that's just what I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. And, uh, I, I, I didn't know at the age of five, although my, my dad had been a national champion rudimental snare drummer in high school. Ah. He won a national contest. Wow. I played in a fife and drum corps all the way through high school, played, played in college. Um, had a field drum laying around the house. and The rest be- is history, right? Before <laughs> I can even remember, he told me I was picking up the sticks and hitting it. Hitting the oh, drum, wow. I could play a I could play a drum cadence by the time I was five. Yeah, you know, um, I I I knew from the age of five that I was going to end up in the music somehow. Yeah, I, I didn't quite know then it was going to be a, drums was going to be the main instrument. Right. Um, I played violin in elementary school. I was a concert master of the elementary school orchestra, and I'm sure we were horrible. What year would this you know, have been now? Oh, 1957. Wow, 56. Yeah, 56, wow. 57, 58, 59. Um, and when I got to junior high school, I was in the percussion um, section taking trumpet lessons. And they had me running back and forth between the percussion section and playing third trumpet. Yeah. And playing in the marching band. And I played all the way through high school. In high school, I got into the dance band, they called it, which was later called the Jazz Workshop, because I had a drum set. Right, okay. That was the reason I got in. <laughs> got I got a drum set. It's like if you got the gear in there, then you're going to get the job, right? I had never played jazz. I had never played a swing beat on a cymbal. Um... I had good ears. Yeah. You know, I picked it up pretty quickly. Uh, didn't really know how to read a, a drum chart. I right. knew how to m- read notated drum music. So you could kind of wiggle your way through it. But I didn't know anything about interpreting yeah. a, a, a drum chart. And I learned pretty quickly because I listened to a lot of jazz records. Um, my high school band director introduced me to Buddy Rich. He played me West Side Story, and that was the end of it. Yeah. That right. lit the fire. So from then on, as far as in your mind, you were going to be a drummer. I, I, that was it for me. I'm, I'm a drummer now. And uh, I got to see Buddy Rich play live uh, probably seven times. Wow. Uh, actually, one night in 1970, I spent an hour alone with him in his dressing room. Hmm. 
and we talk for an hour, and you know, I'm sure I ask pretty stupid questions, you know, but he liked young people, and he liked the inquisitiveness right. of people, young people that he thought was serious, that it really had a yeah. thirst to know, and he tried his mm -hmm. best to explain. Um, he showed me how he played his sticks in midair, showed me how he played wow. left hand under the hi-hat, hi-hat over the right, hi-hat. Yeah. On, on the dressing room counter, he showed me this. Wow, know. that's amazing. Um, I decided that I really needed a great teacher, and living in Syracuse, New York, uh, it wasn't a hardship to get to Manhattan. Yeah. It was a, it was a you know, four-hour, five-hour bus ride. Yeah. Um, so I, our high school band brought in Ed Shaughnessy to, wow, to do right. a clinic and a concert with us. Right. And Paul Lyme was playing with him, right? Mm -hmm. Wasn't Paul Lyme playing with him? No, that was Doc Severinsen. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. yeah Doc. Paul, Paul started yeah. doing a lot of work with Doc, too. Right, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ed Shaughnessy was the drummer for... The drummer for, for The Tonight for, Show. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, so he was very visible. You know, we yeah. saw him every night. All of us watched The Tonight Show for the band, you know. So I, I, I got his number, and I called him, and uh, he agreed to have me come down. He remembered me, uh, and he said, first of all, he said, let me ask you, how are you planning to get here? And I said, well, I'm going to fly, you know, and he said, I'm glad to hear you say that. He said, because if you, if you weren't going to fly, he said, I wasn't going to be able to take you as a student. He says, there's too much chance of you not making it and, oh, yeah, and right, me yeah. wasting my time, and, see, yeah. you know, losing a teaching slot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so for two years, I went down once a month, took the bus. Wow. Okay. So they moved to L.A., and that was the end of that. And yeah. fast forward many years later. Restless Heart gets on The Tonight Show, okay? So we're out in L.A. No, 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 wait. I'm, no, we're still in New York. I'm sorry. God, getting old sucks. We're still <laughs> in New York. It was the last time I had my last lesson with him, and I used to go to the Carson Show rehearsal and sit right behind him. And uh, so the rehearsal's over. I get up, and I slip up, and I say to him, well... Yeah, I got to get to the bus station now because I got to get home. And he looks at me You're and he right goes, bus station. what? And I went, oh, God. Oh, what did I just do? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean, bus? And I said, well, I said, Ed, I, I said, I was afraid that you'd let me go as a student. If I told you I couldn't afford to fly, I had to take the bus. And he said, do you mean to tell me, he said, for the last two years you've been taking a Greyhound bus from Syracuse, New York, to come down here and take lessons? And I said, yes, sir, very <laughs> sheepishly. And he said, that's the most unbelievable <laughs> example of dedication I've ever heard of. So you thought that he was going to be mad at you for lying to yeah. him about that because, yeah. he, you know, under the pretense of you were flying. He said, I don't know Anyone, not one of my students, that 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 would do that. Wow. He said, "Unbelievable," wow. you know. And so I was like, "Thank <laughs> you." you know? And then many years later, um, in '89, we did the Tonight Show, and uh, 
we're, we're actually rehearsing, and the band walked in, and Ed's got his carry bag on his side, and he just very nonchalantly, he walks by and he waves and goes, hello, John, welcome to The Tonight Show, you know, and I said, how in the wide world of sports did I get here? You know, right, yeah. I had no idea how I got there. Wow. But he instilled, he preached, be better than the mob. He said, preparation meeting opportunity equals success. Yeah. He said, be better than everybody else. And he said, you will achieve success. Yeah. And he was very serious about that. And I worked very hard at all my, my lessons with him. Wow, and great. I was always prepared. Yeah, that, there's just something about the senior class like that, mm -hmm. um, bringing up the next generation yeah. of young people. And that's mm -hmm. what we're here for today, yeah. right? Yeah. So talk about um, some of the stumbling blocks that we learned along the way. What would you say would, uh, in your mind, just right off the top of your head, would be like one sort of, uh, oh, oh, crap, uh, moment that you had, that like a mistake you made or something like that, that you think, oh, I'll never do that again, you know, um, in your career, let's say. Especially start. Stage fright was right. a, was a big one for me. Okay. I was okay in the in the local rock bands that mm -hmm. that I was in, and I kind of thought, you know, I, I was I was had a reputation of being a really good player, and um, we got the opportunity in this one band I was in to open for Cactus at the state fair. So, you know, I'm all confident, and uh, the other guys are walking around, they're nervous, and I'm like, ah, nothing to it. Uh, you know? yeah. And we got on stage, and the super trooper spotlight hit me, and I had never been in a spotlight before. It blinded me, and I literally forgot how to count the first song off. Oh, my gosh. Wow. They're all looking at me. The spotlight's on. They're going, come on, come on. I said... How does it go? What's the first number? Yeah. How does it go? Uh, that would be one, John. Yeah, I, I had no idea what I was counting off, but I, oh you know, God. I settled yeah. down about yeah. halfway through the first song. I settled down, but that was a real, yeah, real uh, lesson for me. Yeah, totally. don't get overconfident. Yeah, you, know. you got to kind of get in that zone. Don't get and, and zone out all those thousands and of people. The most embarrassing thing like that that ever happened to me was actually on The Tonight Show. Is that right? Second time we played, uh, I sang a song called Tell Me What You Dream. And I was fine as long as I wasn't the lead singer. Right. Okay. Now I'm the lead singer. Right. Camera's on me, 50 million people watching. Oh, my God. My, my mouth was so dry, my lips were stuck to my teeth. And I, I got to go look that up on YouTube. I, I was so I don't think it's on YouTube. <laughs> oh no! It, well, it might it might not be, but at any rate, the the song was counted. Uh, one, two, da 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 da. You know, yeah. and we had Warren. Uh, uh, oh, I forget his name. Saxophone player. He mm -hmm. played on the record, so he was an artist in his own right on RCA, so they had us both on to do the song. Okay, right, okay. So, and Warren had the had the intro melody, da-da-da-da-da, you know. Yeah. Instead of counting one, two, I counted three, four. 
Yeah. I went, three, four, and nobody came in, and Warren went, you know, you don't do anything over again. Well, actually, the three, four is actually would have been, been the correct way to count that. You know, three, four. No, yo, you're right. You're right. One, two, and then the three, four one, is silent. One, two, three, and four, and one. So it went three, four. So three, four, and it completely threw everybody. Wow. Which it shouldn't have. It's still to be counted. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. So, you know, and immediately I did the roll my eyes thing, you know, and I'm on camera. Oh, my God. I'm like, that was the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. That stuff just happens. You just can't, you know, I it, tell my students, you, there's no, it's going to happen. You're going to slip up yeah, from time to time. Yeah. It's how to recover from it yeah. and let the rest yeah. of the song not mm-hmm. be just totally boned up, you know, because you but, get caught up in that. You know, this was Johnny Carson. Right. It was my teacher sitting right over there to oh, my God. left. Oh, my gosh. This is, I'm like, oh, yeah, the pain. Yeah. You know. Wow. So uh, you, I read somewhere that you grad, you were at North Texas State. Now, how did you go from Syracuse to Texas? Well, I went to uh, a junior college, Onondaga Community College in Syracuse, uh, as a percussion major, which meant classical symphonic percussion. Yeah. Um, which you know I I entail uh, classical snare drum, marimba. Timpani, Timpani. xylophone, you know, and um, I I was very good at timpani. Um, I had to work at xylophone, Mm -hmm. you know, the keyboard stuff. Uh, The snare drum classical lessons, I I looked at five minutes before my lesson. Oh, right. And went in and played. Because that's your, your whole lineage. Yeah. So, but the classical training really helped. Right. When it came to the drum set, because it taught me uh, technique, subtlety, yeah, dynamics, dyna- things like that, dynamics, yeah. phrasing, things like that. Yeah. Um, and I was in the jazz band. Uh, all I went there five semesters. Um, I had a little trouble my second semester, my sophomore year. Um, Is that in Syracuse? Or yeah, yeah. I, I I went below a, a, a two point grade average. So. The, Next semester, I came back. I took one course and got an A in the course and pulled my GPA up to a 3.1 or something, you know, which was good enough to get me to, you know, I transferred to North Texas. North Texas, yeah. How long were you in North Texas? I was at North Texas for three semesters. What years would that that have been? I was there uh, the spring of 73 uh, through... um, 74 I, I, I left there at, at at the I left there in the summer yeah of of uh, 74 Now was that symphonic or was that the jazz No 75 band? Was that I the mean, jazz 75 yeah. I was a what you call a a big band a, a lab band lab band m- yeah. major you know they had yeah. the one o'clock lab band yeah, which was they did now why did they say that why did they say one o'clock it was that was that like the uh, best? because they rehearsed at one o'clock yeah and, and those were like the best guys, right? Well, yeah. So they decided that the one o'clock was going to be the number one band, two o'clock number two band, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. I, I, I had an audition with the one o'clock. There were only two of us that got an audition, myself and a guy named Steve Houghton, who, whom you may have heard of. Yeah, I've heard that name. Um, it was very political. They had their minds made up. They actually recruited Steve to come 
from Wisconsin, and then all of a sudden I showed up, and they went, okay, we uh, what, what are we going to do with this guy? <laughs> so they wanted Steve. I didn't know at the time, but they, they knew it. So they, they went through a week of auditions, and, of course, Steve got in. By that time, all the other band's personnel was set. Yeah. I ended up down in the 9 o'clock band, and the guy, who, who, the trumpet player who ran the 9 o'clock said, I... Great audition, man. He said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, uh, I can't get in a band. i got to get in a band, you know, or I can't stay in school. Right. So, well, we already have three drummers. He said, if you want to share and play one day a week, he said, I'd, I'd love to have you. And I said, sounds great. I had so much fun in that band. The, the, the four of us drummers in that band had so much fun. Yeah. And there were some good players. Now, now was this still the 9 o'clock band? Or? It was the 9 yeah, o'clock band. the 9 o'clock band. Wow. Uh, the next semester, I went to the 3 o'clock lab band because, um, again, it was political. Yeah. You know, right. I had won the Ed Shaughnessy Scholarship, which was political. Yeah, right. Can't have an Ed Shaughnessy student here without giving him the scholarship. Right. So okay. they put me in the 3 o'clock lab band, and the director of the 3 o'clock lab band wasn't happy about yeah. it, and he rode me hard. And I finally just said, you know what, I... I I'm just going to leave, you know. Obviously, they don't want me, so yeah. I, I'm just going to leave. Uh, so that's basically when I left school, and I said, my degree isn't going to allow me to do anything but play, yeah. so I'm going to go out and start playing. Yeah. And uh, started a band with my, um, with my then wife, who was a singer, uh, and a couple friends of mine. Well, did you stay in Texas or did you go back to Stayed in Texas and yeah. we worked around Dallas uh, for several years. We worked every week, one day off. Wow. Very fortunate. The music scene was much different back then. Of course. Yeah. You could work back yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, worked every week. And, yeah. finally, and what kind of band was that? It was a, um, it was a top 40 yeah. commercial band. We grew into becoming a show band. Hired a horn section, went on the road, you know, for several years. Yeah. Um, just we lived wherever, whatever motel we were in is where yeah. we lived. Um, wow. And uh, we, we ended up getting off the road. Um, my wife wanted to be a star. <laughs> and it, it just didn't mesh with with what I wanted to do and yeah. what she wanted to do, so we went our separate ways. Um, I ended up in L.A. for a little bit. Um, didn't didn't get anything going out there. Still in the 70s we're talking, Still right? Still in the 70s. This would have been 79. Yeah. Um, finally had to leave L.A. Uh, ended up in Florida with some friends of mine with a, a band that, once again, we worked every week, had one, yeah. one day off, making decent money. Um, and I, I ended up remarried, um, a couple of years into that, my then wife said, if it weren't for me and the kids, what would you do? Yeah. Right. I said, well, I, I'd move to either, well, New York's too cold. I'm not going there. Yeah. I said, LA, you can't find the music business. I know. Cause I've been there. Yeah. I said, I hear Nashville is a, uh, you know, it's a. Uh, a small community, um, close-knit community, and uh, there's work. A lot of clubs there you can work in. Yeah. This would have been like the early 80s, this right? Would have been, this would have been 1980. 
Yeah. So we're leading up to Restless Heart, right, the, the right. getting together of Restless Heart. So we, we sold the house, packed up everything, moved to Nashville. Um, I, had, I had an audition uh, with a band that I had flown up to do and flew back to Florida, moved to Nashville, still hadn't heard anything from the band, get a call two weeks later, and they said, he was a manager named Eli Ball, and he said, I have a, a band that he said I want you to go audition in the studio for. And it was a band called The Boys Band. They were on Asylum Records, and it was B. James Lowry, who's a, a, a fine studio player in mm -hmm. Nashville here. Uh, Greg Gordon was the lead singer, and Rusty Golden, uh, William Lee Golden's son, right. okay. playing keyboards. Yeah, wow. And I stayed in that band for, um, I, well, I got the job. Paul Gregg was the bass player in that band. He had auditioned with another drummer, and I had auditioned with another bass player, and they yeah. picked us two. So anyway, we were there for about nine months, and you know, a couple, couple of years go by, this is 1983 now, and Paul calls me up. We had stayed in touch, played golf. Paul called me up and said, look, we have a project. Everybody had a project. Project, yeah. We have a project. I want, I, I want you to listen to it and see if you're interested. Well, it was... Uh, Dave Innes, Greg Jennings, Paul Gregg, Verlin Thompson. It was the the, the, the formative years the, of, right, of, yeah. of the Oki slash Restless Heart. Yeah. And I, I heard a few songs, loved the harmonies, loved the song. I said, yeah, great. I love it. I'm in. And that's how things progressed from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you got an RCA, and I guess the rest is history. I mean, yeah. and now how many years were, how many years has it been? Well, since what, eighty? We first got together. First got together in '83, so it would would have been um, uh, almost January like 40, January almost 2021. It was 38 years. Yeah, 38 years. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And I know uh, I started out in 1982 mm -hmm. playing. You know, I graduated in '81, and right. then in '82 I was going on auditions and finally got in a band. And so I've been playing professionally for 40 years. This right. next year, I can honestly say in '22, I can honestly say I've been playing for 40 years. Yeah. And uh, you know, we just us, us guys, you and I, you know, we, we just try to uh, give the best advice we can to young people that are yeah. coming along, you know, that are starting out and they don't know how to. It's, you know, it's, you have to put in the work. You, right. you, you have to practice. You, you, you have to learn new things. You have to listen to other players. Yeah. Your style comes about, and, and, you know, it's perfectly normal when you're, when you're first learning and coming along to copy somebody, of course, you know, yeah. to play, you listen to the record, what's being played. Of course, you know, back then they had all live drummers. Right. Know. Yeah. Now there's a lot of programming, you know, a lot the, of programming yeah. stuff, but listen to some of the old records from the seventies, listen to jazz records, listen to everything you can copy them. See if you can't reproduce what the drummer on the rec record's doing because you're learning. And eventually, you will synthesize a bunch of those, and you'll come up with your own style. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things that I like to talk about is click or no click. Um, when you guys were making your first record, let's say the first Restless Heart record, was there a click track involved, or was it was it just like you know here's the here's the tempo, let's go for it? There was click involved, yeah. um, and they. Um, I don't know exactly what they used to, yeah. to set it up, but 
I preferred having a cowbell on on all four beats. Wow. Um, but that's something the rest of the band would hear and kind of go, "What? What? I, I can't deal with that cowbell." You know. So. Well, I think I was the only one that had it. Okay, I see. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think I was the only one that had it. Um, and and a, a cowbell on all four beats and a shaker. Yeah. On the. Uh, that way, it cuts through all the rest of the music that you've got in your cans, yeah. and then you can you can hear where the beat is. You don't and get a, lost. And a, a shaker would, uh, on on the uh, one, two, three, all those subdivisions, yeah, five, six, so I could hear that subdivision. Yeah, I think one of my favorite songs that you guys did was "Fast Moving Train." I don't know what it is about that song. Maybe it's the twelve string guitar or something in there. But when I first heard that, I was just I couldn't stop listening to it. I was listening to it over and over and over again. Yeah. That was one of my favorite songs, and that would have been. Nine, oh 90. gosh, that was the uh, early nineties. That was third album. That 89, was 90. that was eighty nine. Eighty nine. Wow. Third album, eighty nine. Um, every artist in town wanted that song. Right. It was a Dave Loggins song. Ah, I see. And That's everybody like in Dave Loggins was probably the hottest writer there was at that time. Right. And everybody wanted that song, and he. Uh, he just said, no. He said, I'm giving this one to my boys in Restless Heart. He said, I think they're going to really do a good job on this. And it was a huge, huge yeah. record for us. Wow, yeah. that is amazing. That 12-string guitar in there, that got me. Uh, yeah. That was the best-sounding 12-string guitar, electric 12-string guitar that I'd ever heard. I mean, I think the best-sounding acoustic 12-string uh, was on More Than a Feeling by Boston. Yeah. And then when that thing came out, and I mean, I've heard it like on the birds, and yeah. I've heard some 12-string electrics before, but then this thing was I, like know, I in your face. I can't remember. I want to say it was a Rickenbacker. Right, Rickenbacker 12-string. 12 12 that yeah. Greg had. And he, it sounds like he almost like either doubled it or they put some kind of effects on it to where it was like right in your face. I just yeah. love, especially that little musical. It wasn't really a solo, but it was like in between the... The turnaround. The, the, yeah, the, the musical turnaround. turnaround. Yeah. Around, After yeah. the second, first tech, second yeah. chorus into the last da, verse, da, 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 yeah, yeah, da, da, yeah. That yeah. it was just huge, almost like a solo, like yeah. a musical, like almost a right. like a lead. Mm -hmm. But uh, oh my god, that was my favorite. Um, and uh, so, what's now? You're officially retired now. Uh, I am officially me. retired. Yes. Yeah. I am. Um, it was getting harder and harder for me. Um, the last two years that I that I that I toured. Do you mean physically or just harder Phys to deal with the business? Physically, um, I had developed some minor health issues, um, and uh, you know, I, I it just wasn't fun anymore. Right. And, and then when COVID hit, that just kind of well. When COVID the hit, we Restless Heart played sixteen shows in twenty twenty. Uh, no, of course, no shows in twenty twenty one. Um, uh, Larry announced that he was leaving in January. Uh, I said, you know, now's a good time for me to retire because yeah. I, I, I don't want to go through the hassle of, well, are we going to be four-piece? Are we going to get another singer? Are we going to get, you know. You didn't have the energy for that. Or I didn't patience. have the energy to do it again. And um, uh, because Larry had left to pursue a solo career in 1991, and luckily, we still had a record deal, so we still yeah. had a chance. Yeah, and singers too. You, you, yeah. you, and yeah. Paul, and, and and Paul and I were yeah. were, were still lead singers. Um, and we got lucky. We, we 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 hit with "When She Cries" right out of the box. Yeah. And um, 
so that, that allowed the band to, to go on until 95, mm -hmm. when I decided that's it. We had alienated country radio due to the pop success right, okay. of, when she, of When She Cries. And um, we couldn't get anything played at country radio. So yeah. I said, well, you know, dates are going away, money's going down. I'm yeah. going to go do something else. Did you start the Buffalo Club? I did. did. Or, yeah, so I that did. was your project, I, and I, you just I, found I, the singer. And I, I went, well, started out with... Um, Started out as a trio uh, with Michael Bonagura from Bailey and the Boys, and uh, Roger, his bass player, and our and I, I just have to tell you, our vocals together were magic. Yeah, we 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 got on a um, we got on a, a, a benefit at the Opry House. I think it was Joe Diffie's thing, and we sang uh, we sang uh, Teach Your Children mm -hmm. and um, something else. Wow. And I remember Sherm from 96 FM comes racing backstage and his eyes are as big as saucers and he goes, oh my God, what did I just hear? You know, he said, you guys are going to be huge, you know. Well, Michael couldn't pull himself away from Bailey and the Boys. It's, mm -hmm. He and his wife had been yeah. together doing that for years, which I understood. So I decided to go, you know, I went to Barry Beckett and I said, Barry, I want you to, to be involved in this project. I said, I... I have lost Michael. I said, now we've, I've got to go another direction. So I found Ron Hemby. <clears throat> I forget how I found him. I didn't actually find him. Somebody Who else. Who was the singer? Yeah, yep. somebody else made me aware. He had been a, uh, in a big gospel group called the Imperials and had sung on a lot of right, their, yeah. their records. Phenomenal vocalist. Paul Lyne played on their yeah. stuff. You know, I remember Ph seeing. Phenomenal vocalist. Uh, and... Um, Beeb Bertels from the Little River Band. Okay. And uh, Beeb decided that he couldn't, you know, he just couldn't do it. And so we ended up with uh, Charlie Kelly, and that was the Buffalo Club. How did you come up with the name Buffalo Club? Well, we didn't come up with the name Buffalo Club. The record label did. Okay. Um, yeah. Record label and our management. Uh, of course, un unbeknownst to us, but very announced to them, uh -huh. there was a... Uh, like sl steakhouse slash music venue okay. called the Buffalo Club that was getting ready to start the franchise. Okay. Okay. They send a cease and desist letter. Well, basically our label and our management went, screw you. Well, they weren't the ones that were going to get sued. Right. <laughs> you yeah, were right. going to get sued. Right. Yeah. So... I was against it. I said, man, we got to get another name. We've we, we got to drop this. Well, they refused. So I, I get served papers. Huh. Guy comes to my house, and he serves me. And I said, I tried to tell him. Yeah. I tried to tell him. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to do this. Yeah. Luckily, he goes back, and he tells the, buff he, the Buffalo Club entity. Yeah, right. Tells their attorney. Hey, look, the band didn't want to do this. Yeah. Okay. It, this was all the record label and the management, right. according to the guy I talked to. So our lawyer said, it's a good thing you said that because they're dropping the suit really? against yeah. you. 
they're now suing the record label. Wow. And I went, thank you. Which was <laughs> RCA at the time? No. What, was, it was, what label it was, was it? It was Rising Tide. Rising Tide, yeah. Which, um, back in the day when, when everybody came to Nashville and started a record label because country sales had surged. Yeah, you right. Know, there were like, when we started, I think there were six or seven major labels. Yeah. There were now something like 24 labels yeah, that, were, independence that were considered like that. Yeah. major labels in yeah. Nashville. You know, wow. it, it just got ridiculous. You know, it kind of reminds me of what happened with Shenandoah back in the day. I've talked on my podcast before about Shenandoah, how they, it was one of those things that they came up with the name and then the manager said, oh, yeah, I'm sure the label will take care of this, make sure that we can use the name. Well, nobody checked to see if the name was clear. It was like, well, I mm-hmm. thought you did. I thought, you know, so years later when they got sued by the real Shenandoah, which waited comfortably for years, right. just about till the statute of limitations would mm-hmm. stop them from, because you only have a certain amount of time right. that you can, right. and uh they came up like right on the eleventh hour and said, "Oh yeah, by the way, we have the name Shenandoah," and it was like, it caught everybody by surprise. Yeah, the, our manager Bill Carter at the time uh, was was in that. He was managing Shenandoah yeah. at the time, and he said that it was one of those things where it was yeah. just like they thought the band thought the label did, the label thought the ba- management did, and yeah. the band thought didn't know. You know, the, I understand the label <clears throat> had to pay pay off yeah. several. Bands yeah. that were call out there called Shenandoah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when we got Lone Star, our manager Bill Carter at the time said, "You've got to make sure you have that name clear." Right. And uh, so we went and paid some. Uh, there was a group out of out of uh, England called Lone Star that owned the name, and so we we bought them out. They weren't operating at the time. It was yeah. just somebody just owned the name. Um, so we we paid paid to have the name, and so we yeah. we got it cleared. You just yeah. got to do that, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Got. So what are you up to these days in your retirement? Do you do anything musical at all? Writing anything like that? Nope. You just enjoying your time and yep. relaxing. I'm I am uh, physically <clears throat> not able to move drums around, so I'm not oh, going to be yeah. playing anywhere. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm pretty much done. I'm pretty much hung it up. And uh, you know, the odd thing is, is that I don't miss it. I, really? I thought I thought I would, but I don't seem to. Um, I'm just, you know, I, I achieved everything <clears throat> that I set out to achieve. Um, if I hadn't achieved everything that I set out to achieve, I probably would, uh, obviously I would have regrets, yeah. you know, which I don't have because I consider myself to be very fortunate, uh, and lucky. Um, even though I, you know, I worked, yeah. it was preparation and, uh, but I achieved everything. I've got nothing left to prove. I've got nothing, you know, and yeah. physically I'm just not up to it anymore. Yeah. So yeah. that's, you know, I'm at peace with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great that you could join our podcast and help our our young drummers. And there's a lot of great young drummers out there that oh, just don't know, know what yeah. to do, you know, how, know. To, how to get to where yeah. we are or we yeah. were, you know. Um, it's so. a whole different world, especially in Nashville now, than it used to be. Um the playing opportunities are out there. You have to go find them. Right. You have to network. You have to go sit in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can't expect, uh, you know, somebody to call you on the phone and, and offer you a, you know, yeah. $500, $600 a week gig. Yeah. You have to prove yourself. It's like, um, I remember Robert K. Orman, who's a, a journalist here in Nashville, yeah. said, Nashville will reward persistence more often than it will 
talent or whatever. Then it will um, reward talent. Yeah, right. And he's right. Yeah, I it's the, the, he said the, the, this musical community wants to know you're going to be here and you're going to stick around. Yeah, you know, and that's true. It's still true in Nashville. I think one good way for a drummer to work his or her way in to a situation would be right. You know, you can't do right. anything better than write. Because sure. if you're in a group of three people, let's mm-hmm. say, and you write a song, mm-hmm. you're writing a song, yeah. um, and that and there's talent in that group yeah. enough to make uh, the nucleus of a band. You're yeah. in that band. I mean, you you they're yeah. not going to go. Yeah. Well, who? What drummer are we going to use? I was like, we got yeah. a drummer right here. Yeah. Well, so, look what it did for Don Henley. <laughs> of course. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. From a vocalist, a writer, yeah. a drummer, everything. Yeah. 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 Right. Be a part of something. Go in there and uh, start something or start yeah. writing something or whatever. And at the end of the day, you own intellectual property you can't do anything better than that those are the people with the power that's right yeah the people that Mm -hmm. wrote the song Mm -hmm. you know I I don't know how many times we play Amazed on stage and uh, thousands of people listen and enjoy it I wished to God that I had written that song you know (laughs) because they're the ones who at the end of the day they're the ones who build houses and wealth and that kind of thing not that money's everything I'm just saying that you know that to write to come up with intellectual property you just can't do better than that no you can't you could be part of a band as well if you're a player that's a great way to network like you said network and get out there and um, you it's it's a band you wouldn't even have to audition for let me tell you that you you, uh, (laughs) um, and probably would make yourself somewhat uh, fireproof. Yeah. Um, they're not going to let a guy go that is writing the hits. <laughs> exactly. Or that's part of the vocal sure. uh, yep. mix mm-hmm. or there's right. a lot of things. Right. Yeah, Part of the rhythm right. section. You are who you are and you're part of that DNA of that yep. band. You know? Yes, that's true. And so, yep. uh, But there's nothing wrong with if you don't write and if you don't uh, sing or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with, like you said, going on auditions mm-hmm. and getting out there and putting mm-hmm. your name out there and going and meeting people. Just go to clubs yep. or wherever the music is. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid to go up and introduce yourself and say, you know, I'm yep. a drummer. Um, uh, let, let's stay in touch, you know, kind of thing and then that may end up being something in the future you just never know be nice yeah smile be courteous yeah and be prepared yeah you know because that's what will get you hired right you know larry london told me once he said i see all these guys from la come in here to nashville and with the attitude of i'm going to own this town in a week i got this you know and he said yeah, about a month later, they come slinking back through the door with, man, how do I get a gig in this town? And Larry says, I'd smile and say, first of all, take all your chops, throw them out the window. Right. Nobody cares about your chops. They want time and they want groove. Yeah. That's what it's got to fit for. the song. You have exactly. to, drums are just like a vocal part right. that has to fit the song. You yeah. have to play for the song. Take your chops and throw them right out the window. Nobody cares and nobody wants them. Save those for your drum solo in the middle of the show if exactly. they're gonna, lucky enough to have one. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, thank you so much, John. It's been so great. And I'm such a fan of yours. You're, you're just like a hero of mine ever since oh. I first started out. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate and, uh, that. Yeah. Best of luck to you in your retirement, and I hope you get to chill and relax and hopefully watch the next generation of great drummers come along and look at them and go, yep, yep, okay, yep, I used to do that. Yeah, there's some great ones out there, too. Really are. Some it's scary ones, actually. Yeah, you see yeah. on uh, Instagram and TikTok yeah. and stuff like that, some of the talent yeah. that's out there. It's just like, yeah. where, are the, where do these people get that? Where do they come from? I know. I know. There's some really, really good players out there coming up. Well, uh, we will see you next time. Uh, okay. And thanks again for joining us here on... My-